0: Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. I am Dr. Jack Knoll, a pediatric resident at the Medical College of Georgia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jim Wild and Dr. Ina Kimnicki. Dr. Wild is a pediatric emergency physician at the Children's Hospital of Georgia, who's also trained in pediatric infectious diseases. Dr. Kimnicki is a pediatric emergency medicine fellow here at MCG, and I'd like to take a second to welcome everybody to the podcast. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here today.
0: Today we'll be discussing the evaluation of animal and human bites. Our discussion will include recognizing common history and physical exam findings, recognizing important pathogenic bacteria associated with human and animal bites, understanding the initial diagnostic approach, uh, initiating appropriate prophylaxis to prevent tetanus, rabies, and wound infection, finally to create an appropriate disposition for patients with bite wounds.
2: As a pediatric emergency medicine physician, animal bites are common reasons why children come to the ER. It counts for about 1% of all ED visits during the summer months. There are an estimated 5 million bites per year in the United States, about 80 to 90% of which are caused by dogs, around 5% by cats, and oddly enough, about 2% by humans.
0: Many people also assume that most bites are from wild animals, but in reality, the majority is from the family or neighborhood pet.
2: Good point, Jack. Usually these bites are minor. But if an animal bite is not appropriately managed, this can lead to significant morbidity and mortality.
1: The most common bites I see in pediatric emergency room are dog bites, and children are particularly vulnerable to dog bites simply because of their unpredictable nature, which potentially could trigger aggression by the dog toward a child. The peak incidence for dog bites occurs usually between 5 and 9 years old, and boys are also more likely to suffer from a dog bites than girls.
2: I also want to mention that the location of the bite may depend on the age. For example, preschool children more often sustain bites to the head and face, while older children more commonly suffer bites to the extremities.
1: An extended type of injury can also vary. Injuries due to bites can cause laceration, contusion, hematoma formation, fracture, dislocation, or even amputation.
2: The other potentially more serious complications of dog bites is the development of an infection such as cellulitis, abscess, or osteomyelitis. Animal bites also pose a significant risk for transmission of a few devastating diseases such as rabies and tetanus. So Jack, let's get our discussion going by introducing our clinical case.
0: Alright, so to start we have a 6-year-old boy who was brought to the emergency department by his family due to a dog bite to the right hand that occurred approximately 3 hours ago. The boy was noted to have a laceration over the dorsum of his right hand that was noted to be bleeding. The family was able to stop the bleeding at home by the application of pressure. The patient is afibrile, he has stable vital signs, and his right hand is wrapped in a towel.
1: Great case. When a child presents to emergency department with a bite wound, first of all, it's important to review vital signs as airway, breathing, and circulation. In this case, the bleeding was able to be stopped by application of pressure prior to arrival to emergency department and it's a good sign that the patient has stable vital signs. Since the child is stable, the next step would be to obtain a detailed history regarding the
2: bite. It's important to know what type of animal caused the bite. Different animals harbor different organisms, so the resulting infections can vary substantially. Cultures from infected wound bites are usually mixed and involve the mixture of mouth flora from the biting animal and skin flora from the victim. In this case you've just presented, we know that it was a dog bite. Jack, what bacteria would you worry about for a dog bite?
0: Typically, when I see a dog bite, I worry about uh, pastorella canis, capnocytophagia, canimorsus, anaerobes, streptococcus viridans, and, of course, staphylococcus species.
1: And another common bite wound is from cats. A cat's mouth has slightly different flora than dogs. So, Jack, what organisms are commonly associated with cat bites?
0: When I deal with the cat bite wounds, Pastorella maltosida is commonly associated. Meanwhile, they can still have the streptococcus, staphylococcus, anaerobes, and moroxella.
2: Great job. And let's not forget about human bites that can be infected by Iconella corrodins. So knowing the source of the bite is important because it will help determine treatment plan.
1: Jack, we need more information about this dog bite. I want to know if this is a family pet or stray dog. And what is the immunization status specifically for rabies of the dog? Was the attack provoked, unprovoked? And where is the dog currently?
0: Those are all excellent questions to know about for the history in this case. So for this one, the family found the dog wandering around the neighborhood without a collar. They decided to bring him home. They obviously were unsure of the vaccination status, but they thought overall he appeared pretty healthy. The dog bite occurred when he was playing near the pet feeding dish, and he fell onto the dog. Mom said it was very chaotic and everything happened so fast, she wasn't entirely sure, but amongst the chaos, the child was bitten and the dog escaped out of the house and the family has no idea where the dog is now.
2: It's concerning that the vaccination status for rabies is unknown for the dog and that the dog is now missing. Typically, if an animal is healthy and available for quarantine, it can potentially be observed for signs of rabies. This would help in making a decision regarding the administration of rabies prophylaxis for the child, but without the dog, this of course is impossible now.
1: And the immunization status of the child that was beaten is also important, specifically to determine if tetanus prophylaxis is appropriate.
0: So for our case, in addition to not being able to locate the dog, the child is also behind on his immunizations. He's only received the hepatitis B vaccination during infancy. Otherwise, he doesn't have any tetanus vaccinations.
1: Okay, so this patient will definitely need both tetanus and rabies prophylaxis, given the unknown status of the dog and patient's current immunization status. Jack, what about any allergies?
0: This patient doesn't have any history of medication allergies or even environmental allergies.
1: It's good to know because prophylactic antibiotics may be considered as part of the management to prevent the development of a wound infection, which we will discuss more in detail later on this episode.
0: Dr. Wild, Ina mentioned the prevention of wound infection with a prophylactic antibiotic, but what about the wound itself?
2: Well, a good head-to-toe physical exam is important. There may be an obvious bite, but you should check for other parts of the body that may have sustained trauma or injury as well. For the wound itself, you should first evaluate the location and depth of the wound. What is the extent of the injury? Is there involvement of the tendon, joint, bone? Is there a foreign body? Check for the range of motion at the site. If it's located near a joint, perform a neurovascular examination. So Jack, what are your findings on physical exam?
0: So for this physical exam, the child had a 3-centimeter laceration with some jagged edges on the dorsum of his right hand with minimal bleeding that was well-controlled with the application of pressure. There's also a small puncture wound near the laceration. Reassuringly, he does have full range of motion in his right hand with strong radial and ulnar pulses. There does not appear to be a loss of sensation to the right hand itself. However, due to discomfort, it's kind of difficult to evaluate the function of his ulnar radial, and median nerves, but no overt defects are observed on my exam.
2: Okay, so it appears that the patient's neurovascular function is intact. You mentioned that the patient has a puncture wound. You know, why is this an important finding?
1: Puncture wounds are usually deep and can be associated with foreign body retention, such as tooth of the animal or fracture. These wounds are also more prone to develop of infection in the future.
0: These are all good things to know when assessing a wound. What about disinfecting this wound? What are our key steps here?
1: It is very important to irrigate a bite wound thoroughly to reduce the risk of infection.
2: And of course, do not forget about pain control, which can include local infiltration with anesthetic or the application of topical anesthetic or even a regional block. Oral and intravenous pain medication can be helpful, and sometimes you may need an anxiolytic. Finally, there are even some circumstances where sedation
0: may be needed. It's always important to keep the patient's pain control in mind. This can be a very stressful situation for families and trying to keep them comfortable. The topic of what we're using to clean out these wounds, is it better to use normal saline or tap water?
1: Good question, Jack. A 2012 Cochrane review found no difference in infection rates between normal saline and tap water irrigation prior to laceration repair.
2: You'll want to avoid using povidone iodine scrub to cleanse the wound, since the soap component can be damaging to subcutaneous tissues. Povidone iodine solution can be used, but it's not necessary, since it's the dilution of microbes with large volumes of fluid, usually water, that minimizes infection risk. But povidone iodine and benzalkonium chloride are useful for cleansing the area around the soiled wounds.
0: Well, that's a really good distinction between the scrub and the solution. So the solution's okay, but really just some simple tap water should do the trick. Uh, how much irrigation do you typically use for this?
1: First of all, remember to remove visible foreign material and provide debridement if necessary. Recently, it has been debated that high-pressure irrigation may drive microbes deeper into the wound. So the newest recommendation is to use high-volume but not high-pressure irrigation. And the recommended amount of fluid for irrigation is approximately 100 milliliters for each centimeter of laceration. For example, if laceration is 3 centimeters, we will use 300 milliliters of tap water for irrigation.
0: Well, that's really good to know. Uh, You know, we've mentioned the risk of foreign material in wounds. Do you guys ever x-ray or use any other source of imaging to evaluate these wounds?
1: Great question, Jack. A plain film x-ray of the affected area is recommended for penetrating wounds that overline bones or joints. And if you suspect an associated fracture or worried about the presence of foreign bodies, such as tooth, any deep wounds, then x-ray would be helpful as well.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. Detecting foreign bodies and fractures is important in any case, especially these bite wounds. All right, so we've discussed how to clean the wounds. Uh, now, how about fixing these wounds? Is it necessary to close these wounds every time? Primary closure
2: of bite wounds is somewhat controversial. Current guidelines from the Infectious Disease Society of America are the most conservative and state that primary wound closure is not recommended for animal bite wounds with the exception of those to the face. There is not universal agreement on these IDSA recommendations, and many clinicians do close some animal bites elsewhere on the body. Most experts recommend closing wounds on cosmetically vulnerable sites, such as the face, especially because the generous blood supply makes infection less of an issue.
1: Closure of other wounds depends on the circumstances. Closing wounds on the trunk, arms, or legs is a reasonable option after thorough irrigation. In our practice, we generally do close wounds on other parts of the body, but after thorough cleansing and after discussion with the family. It is commonly recommended to cleanse hand and foot wounds and then wait at least two or three days for a delay closure, and if there is no signs of infection, uh, then we can close those wounds.
2: Crush wounds and puncture wounds should not be closed primarily, nor should animal bites in immunocompromised hosts. Small, cosmetically unimportant wounds can be cleansed and allowed to heal by secondary intention.
1: And we should avoid placement of absorbable subcutaneous sutures because they will increase risk of infection. And also never use tissue adhesives such as dermabond to bite wounds.
2: Suturing an animal bite potentially creates an an initial anaerobic environment at risk of infections. Some clinicians choose to delay closure with sutures for a few days and monitor for the development of infection. However, loosely approximating a potentially infected wound with non-absorbable sutures may be reasonable. This will help with the cosmetic healing process.
0: Those are all great points on wound closure, which is not always a straightforward concept for these animal bites. We also mentioned earlier the need for prophylactic antimicrobial therapy. How do we choose an antibiotic, and how long do you typically treat these patients?
1: Not all bites require antimicrobial therapy. Any wound with signs of infection should receive antimicrobial therapy. And patients who have suffered moderate to severe injuries, such as those with edema present or have had a crush injury, should receive prophylactic antimicrobial therapy for three to five days.
2: Puncture wounds should also be treated with antibiotics. Typically, hand, foot, and genital bite wounds should be treated with antibiotics in addition to any deep or surgically closed facial wounds. Injury involving penetration of the bone, tendon sheath, or joint is much higher risk. In these patients, consultation with orthopedics or a hand surgeon may be indicated. In some cases, these patients may require a trip to the operating room for thorough debridement, exploration, and cleaning.
1: And remember that patients with certain conditions also should receive prophylactic antimicrobial therapy, such as those who are immunocompromised or splenic, and those with advanced liver disease, and all cat bites wounds also should receive antibiotics.
0: Excellent points. So how do we choose our empiric antibiotic to prescribe?
2: When we choose which antibiotic to administer, we have to consider what organisms are likely to cause an infection. The first-line prophylactic antibiotic for animal and human bites is amoxicillin clavulonate. This antibiotic is typically effective against the majority of organisms due to
0: animal or human bites, including pasteurella. What about patients that are allergic to penicillin?
1: Alternatives for penicillin allergic patients include trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole with clindamycin or extended-spectrum cephalosporin, such as cefpadoxime, with clindamycin.
2: That's right. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is effective against Staph aureus, Pasteurella, and Iconella. Clindamycin is effective against anaerobic bacteria, streptococci, and Staph aureus. So that's why we often administer these two antibiotics at the same time.
0: Okay, so our go-to antibiotic is amoxicillin clavulanate. But you mentioned that not all wounds need to be prophylactically treated as long as it's a simple bite injury and they're able to be watched for the development of possible signs of infection. But what if the child returns after he has had a bite and it looks infected?
1: So all children with bite wounds should be rechecked in 24 to 48 hours for signs of infection. And when a child presents with symptoms of bite wound-associated infection, any sutures should be removed if they were placed for wound repair, and culture of the wound should be sent.
2: Empiric therapy for inpatients includes the same classes of antibiotics that were used for antimicrobial prophylaxis. If the patient requires intravenous antibiotics, start with ampicillin silbactam. This will cover Pasteurella, other gram negatives, anaerobes, strep, and methicillin sensitive staph aureus. Keep in mind though, this does not cover for methicillin resistant staph aureus. For children with serious allergy to penicillin, intravenous trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole in conjunction with clindamycin can be administered. Extended spectrum cephalosporins such as ceftriaxone can be used with clindamycin for penicillin allergic patients who can tolerate cephalosporins. Therapy, of course, should be modified once the results of the culture are available. If the infected wound is not improving after a day or two of IV antibiotics, especially if cultures are still pending, it would be prudent. To add an antibiotic effective against methicillin resistant Staph aureus.
0: Those are great points. In addition to altering your antimicrobial therapy, especially if you're concerned about MRSA, uh, you should remove the sutures to give the wound a chance to drain and heal. And let's go back on the topic of when to administer tetanus vaccination and tetanus immunoglobulin for these animal bite wounds.
1: Tetanus immunization status should be assessed in all patients. If the patient received fewer than three tetanus-containing vaccines, or if the vaccination status is unknown, then administration of both tetanus-containing vaccine and tetanus-immune globulin is recommended.
2: Remember, the tetanus-immune globulin should not be given in the same syringe or injected at the same site as the tetanus vaccine.
1: Good reminder, Dr. Wilde. The tetanus immune globulin is not indicated if three or more tetanus vaccinations have been administered. And for these patients, a booster of tetanus-containing vaccine is recommended if five or more years have passed since the last dose for those with at least three tetanus-containing vaccines.
2: DTAP, that's big D, big T, is administered for children younger than seven years, while the Tdap, that's big T, small d, is administered for children who are 7 years and older. Underimmunized children between 7 to 11 years that have not received DTaP in the past should be administered Tdap with another at age 11 or 12 years old. For those that are age 11 or older, a single dose of Tdap is preferred to Td, that's big T, small d, who have not previously received Tdap. Otherwise, Td or Tdap can be administered without preference.
0: That's a lot of acronyms to kind of go through. If you need any more clarification, we have included at the bottom of our podcast the Red Book recommendations that Dr. Wild just covered.
2: That's right. The Red Book divides tetanus management by two types of wounds, clean minor wounds and all other wounds. All wounds due to animal bites are considered to be dirty wounds.
0: All right, so that that covers tetanus pretty well. What about rabies? How do we decide when we need prophylaxis versus when we can watch and wait?
2: The decision to begin in rabies prophylaxis can be complex. In the United States, bats and wild carnivores such as skunks, foxes, coyotes, and raccoons should be assumed to have rabies. Bites from those animals require rabies vaccine and rabies immune globulin.
1: And remember that post-exposure prophylaxis is also indicated when a bat was found in the same room where an individual was sleeping. There have been cases of rabies in situations like this because a bad bite or scratch may be too small and can be very difficult to
2: identify. In the case of domestic dog and cat bites, if the animal is available for 10 days of observation, prophylaxis is recommended only if the animal develops signs of rabies. Most will not have symptoms during this period, and it is unnecessary to administer vaccine or immunoglobulin. However, if the animal does display symptoms of rabies, the animal should be euthanized and tested as soon as possible.
1: And if the animal cannot be observed for 10 days because it cannot be located, then rabies prophylaxis is indicated.
0: That's a great summary of what to do with your normal domestic cat and dog bites and some other uh, carnivorous mammals. What about uh, the more uncommon rodent bites?
1: So, bites of small rodents such as hamsters, mice, rats rarely require prophylaxis because those animals almost never are found to be infected with rabbits. The same is true for rabbits and squirrels. But these animals may have other associated diseases to consider. For example, rat bites can lead to rat bite fever from infection with Streptobacillus maniliformis or Spirellum minus. Tularemia due to francisella tularensis can result from handling or being bitten by a rabbit. And we can't forget about cat scratch disease due to Bartonella henzale.
0: That's great to keep in mind. And we'll kind of go to a more optimistic note. Uh, The entire state of Hawaii remains rabies-free. So let's go over the rabies vaccine regimen since it can be a bit confusing.
2: Sure thing. When prophylaxis for rabies is indicated, it should be initiated as soon as possible, ideally within 24 hours. The recommended dose of rabies immunoglobulin is 20 international units per kilo. Half of the rabies immunoglobulin should be used to infiltrate the wound if possible, with the remainder administered intramuscularly into the deltoid muscle. The immunoglobulin should be given within 7 days of the bite.
1: In regards to timing, the rabies vaccine is administered on the first day, which counts as day 0. Then the vaccine should be administered again on day 3, 7, and 14. So this means a total of four doses with one dose of rabies immune globulin administered on day zero as well.
0: All right. So what about for our patients that happen to be immunocompromised with asplenia or for a different reason?
2: For a person with altered immunocompetence, post-exposure prophylaxis should include a five-dose vaccination regimen on day zero, three, seven, 14, and 28, and an additional one dose of rabies immune globulin on day zero.
0: Perfect. It looks like any domestic or wild animal poses a potential risk of infection or injury. What about human bites? How do we treat those bites differently from animal bites?
1: Human bites have a much higher risk of infection. When an individual hits another person's teeth with a closed fist or through other most likely accidental means, a human bite can result. So teeth can penetrate the joint capsule of a hand and lead into development of infection in the joint or even spread along the tendon
2: sheath. Cultures from human bites are usually mixed with various bacteria, including Iconella corrodans, Haemophilus species, Streptococcus, Staphylococcus, and anaerobes. Remember, you should never close wounds due to human bites because there is a very high risk of secondary infection. The same prophylactic antibiotics we use in animal bites are used in human bites.
1: And if a patient presents to emergency department with signs of infected human bite to the hand, a hand surgeon should be consulted. Uh, the patient will require extensive irrigation, debridement, administration of intravenous antibiotics, and admission to the hospital. Remember that human bites can also transmit other pathogens, such as hepatitis B and C viruses, herpes viruses, cytomegalovirus, Transmission of HIV due to human bites are rare, but it's biologically possible.
2: Also, remember that bite marks can be a form of physical or sexual abuse of a child. Intercanine distances more than 3 centimeters might suggest an adult bite rather than a child bite. In these cases, appropriate referrals should be triggered if there is suspicion for abuse. That's why it's so important to do the head-to-toe physical exam of any bite injury.
0: That's an important point to remember, Dr. Wilde. So we've covered a lot of material today that applies to the general pediatrician, emergency physician, and the pediatric hospitalist. But let's take a little time to wrap up our episode today. Let's summarize our key points for the audience.
2: Sure, I'll start us off. Always begin with detailed history regarding the animal bite, including the type of the animal, health and immunization status of the animal, and the circumstances surrounding the event.
1: Perform a thorough head-to-toe physical examination, which includes a neurovascular assessment as well as other signs of injuries that may not be initially identified. An x-ray should be ordered for suspicion or evidence of possible foreign body or bone joint involvement.
2: Irrigate open wounds with copious volumes of tap water or normal saline. Primary wound closure for bite wounds to the face is recommended. Bites elsewhere can be closed depending on the circumstances.
1: Amoxicillin clavulinate is an antibiotic of choice for prophylaxis and empirical treatment of animal or human bite, and clindamycin plus trimethoprim-sulfamethoxazole is acceptable alternative for those who are allergic to penicillin.
2: Always assess the risk for rabies exposure in animal bites. It is also important to review tetanus immunization status in a child with a bite wound. And finally, children should always be supervised during their interaction with animals.
0: Thank you both so much for joining me for today's discussion of animal and human bites.
1: It was a pleasure, Jack.
0: Thank you, Jack and Ina. I enjoyed being here. I would like to give an additional thanks to Dr. Natalie Lane and Dr. Desiree Siav, who provided editing and peer review for today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can always email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Check out our show notes for more information and an opportunity to receive free CME credit sponsored by the Medical College of Georgia. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.